The gift of peace. The gift of peace. Do you have peace? Do you have peace? If we were sitting across from each other for a cup of coffee and I asked you that question, do you have peace? What might you respond? And every one of us, I imagine that conversation would look a little different. For some of us right away, we would go to a circumstance, perhaps a wounded relationship, perhaps a season of serious regret, where we would view that question through that lens, we'd say, I do not have peace, or I have some measure of peace. The psalmist, as we walk through Psalm 119, now on letter 21 of 22, he is a man who knows difficult circumstances. He knows the concerns of this life. And his concerns are coming because he's following after the way of the Lord. His hardships are massive, so much so that there is a multitude of people, of authorities in this world, that are trying to kill him. And yet this morning, he writes as a man and he prays as a man with peace, with peace. Before we walk through this letter this morning that is sin or shin. Your Bible likely places both words there. It's the same word, it's just a different pronunciation. So in Hebrew, if the dot's on the very beginning, which is right to left, it's shin. If it's on the end, it's sin. The same noise, that's or shh noise. What a beautiful thing to have a strophe, of course, coincidental, but shh. Peace and quiet. What a noise for us to have on a text on peace. The psalmist defines peace not as my circumstances are all working out the way that I would hope that they would, but he defines peace throughout Psalm 119 as that of walking in the hand of the Lord, even through a world of chaos. Let me show you a few of those to bring them back to mind. Look over to Psalm 119, verse 35. We'll just, I just chose a couple of verses out of Psalm 119 that reflect this description of what peace is, that shalom, that peace. In verse 35, he says, Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Peace is to be led in the path of the Lord's commandments. Look over to verse 105. That sound should be a ringtone. Isn't that great? 105. He says, Your word, Lord, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Verse 133. keeping steady of my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. It's the Proverbs 3.6, make straight my paths. That's the peace the Lord offers you in Christ. 
you today, regardless of your circumstances, you can have true peace. You can be in the hand of the will of the Lord, regardless of your circumstances. That's the gift that the Lord has for us. And this morning in this strophe, the psalmist is going to reflect for us the role of the Word of God in giving us and bringing us and reminding us of the peace that is ours. So we're going to notice two components that the Word of God plays for us in peace. And then our third component, as we look at the, the final three verses, we're going to note this four-part cycle of peace that the psalmist knows. In your bulletin, you have a little extra insert in there that has that design for you that's going to make a lot more sense as we walk through this together toward the end. So keep that handy. As we're going to find together, the things that we hope in, where our hope ultimately is, becomes that which we practice. And the things that we practice therein live by, the boundary markers, becomes the things that we really love, that we water with our time and talents and resources. And, and those things, we become ever more aware of them in our life and in the world. And the things we become more aware of, we increasingly put our hope in them. And it's just this cycle that keeps going and going and going. What the psalmist does is his hope is rooted in the Lord by his word. And he has peace even when his life may be coming to an end. So let's begin first and foremost, those of us, all of us desiring peace, we must notice the true value of the Lord's Word, and it is captivating. The true value of the Lord's Word, it is captivating, verse 161 through 163. The psalmist says, praying to the Lord, Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and I abhor falsehood. Oh, but I love your law. I won't ask you to flip there, but you can write down Matthew 13. Write down Matthew 13, 44. Through a series of these parables, Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13, 44 like a field. A field in which one goes along and he finds there's an incredible treasure. He's blown away at the value in the field. Other people come and go and they walk by the field and they just assume it's just a normal field. Not even a great location. But the psalmist knows the true value of what's actually in the field. So it says that he goes and he sells with joy. He sells all that he has that he may obtain the field. The kingdom of heaven, the word of our Lord, the Lord is worth our captivating attention. His value is so great that a true perspective will lead us to look at all the things in our life and to sell it with joy if it means gaining the kingdom of heaven, gaining the Lord and knowing Him in His Word, and being ruled by the Lord, it's greater than all the riches, all the values of our life. It's a reassessing of our priorities. That's the first element that the Word of the Lord must play in our lives if we hope for true peace, a true valuing of the Word. Now, I'll ask you a question, and the answer for all of us will be the same. The answer is, not as much as I want to. Well, here's the question I ask you. How much do you value the Word of the Lord? How captivated are you by the Word of the Lord? 
If you have children and your children were to be asked, how captivated is your mom or dad or grandma or grandpa by the word of the Lord? Co-workers, friends in life, if they were to be asked, how captivated are you by the word of the Lord? What would they respond? The answer for all of us, though, is the same in this way. Not as much as we hope we would be, correct? None of us would say, well, I'm totally captivated, totally immersed. But the psalmist, look what he says, princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. So let me paint a picture for us of what's taking place. In the Hebrew here, a couple of translations, the NIV and and the New English translation pick up on a little better of what's taking place. He's acknowledging that the authorities of this world, the princes of this world that don't live by the word of the Lord, they're attacking him. And they're like house cats. He's like a mouse. And they're like house cats, which, unless you're a giant mouse, is going to do some serious damage. And so he admits his position. The princes of this world, they persecute me without cause. But the Lord is standing behind the house cats, and he is like a giant lion. And so he trembles, not at the house cats, but he trembles at the roar, not the meows. He trembles at the roar of the lion. That's what terrifies him. It's a terrifying power in the word of the Lord. The NIV picks this up. It says, rulers persecute me without cause. Listen, but my heart trembles at your word. The New English translation says, rulers pursue me for no reason, yet I am more afraid of disobeying your instruction. A proper gift of peace will only come when we're reminded of the proper perspective of the captivating power of the roar of the Word of God. That's the gift that the Lord gives us as a church family. To remind each other of the true value of God's Word. We're mice who are terrified of cats when the mighty lion roars behind them. And so the world can't understand when when Christians go through hardship or even in small measures, they they don't benefit financially or they suffer relationally because they live by the Word of God. It doesn't make sense to the house cats of this world. But they don't have the proper understanding of the value of the lion behind them. We don't face physical persecution here. But there are multitudes of brothers and sisters in Christ all over this world who do, who are faithful. Many who, in gathering together with their corporate local church body, literally go with the realization that they may very well be bombed or killed. And yet they gather and they worship the Lord as they're captivated by the value of the Word of God. And it causes a watching world to look and say, this does not make sense. Because they don't understand the true value. You see, all the people in that kingdom of heaven parable, all the people walk by the field. And they don't understand the true value that's there. But the one who went and saw the true value, they don't understand how you could value anything else as much as that, regardless of the cost. So too it is with the Word of God. So too it is with the strength of our life. Do I 
value? Will I value more this week? Will I be more captivated by the Word of God in my life? That's our encouragement. The psalmist still is in the middle of hardship. It hasn't changed, but he's reminded. He's in awe of the Word and the power of the lion. That's the goodness for us. That's why when we start in corporate worship, we believe what happens here together is corporate worship, gathering together as brothers and sisters in Christ, singing and fixing our eyes on the Lord. Our, our comfort isn't in me saying, hey, how are you doing? How do you feel today? Alistair Begg gives this example. It's, it's not, your comfort isn't saying, and how are you doing today? Because if you were to be honest, a lot of you, you're like, I don't even know how I'm here, to be honest. I haven't even had my coffee yet. Others of you have had a very seriously difficult, painful week, painful month, painful year. Some of you had a fight with the person you're sitting beside at some point recently. Now it got weird. I shouldn't have said that. No, no. But our comfort isn't how we feel. Our comfort isn't how we're interacting with the cats of this world. Our comfort is in being reminded of what we know is true. Our comfort is in the Word of God who's unchanging and trustworthy and who works through all the circumstances of life for our good to shape us into the image of Christ. Our goodness, our comfort is the gospel, a, a true valuing, a reminder of the field that we rest in and that we have in Christ, that we need to be re-reminded of every week and every day. That's the beauty of the local church. It's how God wired us. So desiring peace means we must desire to be captivated by the Lord's Word and help each other do so while we ourselves are reminded. Secondly, the perfect peace from the Lord's Word is praiseworthy. The perfect peace from the Lord's Word is itself praiseworthy. Meaning while you're going through the circumstances and trials of this life, a peace that is maintained is worthy of saying, Lord, thank you. Thank you for deliverance that will come one day in the future that I keep asking you about. But thank you for the peace and steadiness you give me in your word while I'm in the trial. Look what he says in verse 164 and 165. He says, seven times a day, or literally seven in a day, I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Again, that's true peace, is to be in the hand of the Lord, walking in the way of the Lord among the rocks of this life. Seven in the day. Seven in the day is, is the same idea in Thessalonians where he talks about pray continually. So he doesn't mean seven times a day, but literally seven a day, the perfect number, the fullness. I, I, I just I praise you through the day. Seven times a day, I praise you for your righteous rules. Remember the man's circumstance that we've had so far. His life is on the line, and he's praising the Lord. And he gives this statement, Great peace, exceeding peace, have those who love your law. One of the beauties of going through Scripture, if you're not yet a believer, read the Scriptures. Read the Scriptures. We're talking 40 different authors, 1,500 years, three different languages. Yet the same thread all throughout. It's God breathed. What the psalmist is doing is he's abiding in, in the Lord. It's the same thing Paul tells the church in Philippi to go through. Look over in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. 
Look over to Philippians 4. This is incredible. If you're in the Pewback Bible, that's page 982. Page 982. The church in Philippi, just like the psalmist, is going through suffering. He's suffering because he's resting in the hand of the Lord. He's suffering because he is an Israelite, living in the covenant promises of God, living by the teachings of the word of the Lord. And he's experiencing hardship because of it. The church in Philippi, hundreds of years later, is gathering together people who have turned from sin and placed their faith and trust in the promised one, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And because they're living by the way of the Lord, abiding in His Word, they are also experiencing suffering and heartache and persecution. Look at Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Look at the similarities. Look what Paul says to the Christian congregations in Philippi who are experiencing suffering. He says, Rejoice in Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, listen to this. The Lord is at hand. It's the nearness of the Lord, the awareness of the nearness of the Lord. And watch what the reminder that the Lord is at hand will do. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't write, to the church in Philippi and says, don't worry, it's going to get way better. Don't worry, I heard the government authorities are going to pass legislation that's going to make it way easier on us. What does he say? The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your requests be made known to God. The peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's the nearness of the Lord. It's an awareness of the nearness of the Lord that brings the believer peace in a world of chaos and trial. It doesn't make sense to the house cats of the world. It can't. But to the believer, it's our true hope. The perfect peace from the Lord is praiseworthy. So whereas the psalmist says, Great peace have those who love your law, nothing can make them stumble. Paul says to the church in Philippi, it's a peace of God which surpasses all understanding. It's the last thing the world would expect them to be talking about and praising the Lord about. Peace, when it appears their world is falling apart. But when there's a sovereign Lord, there is no falling apart to those that rest in His hands. It's a peace that goes beyond all understanding. Our circumstances, so often we long for peace with each other, and we should, and our culture speaks of world peace. Well, world peace cannot be manufactured by people, as we are enslaved to sin. No peace agreement, no treaty, no work on our own can bring the peace that the Scriptures talk about here. We must have a vertical peace with God first. That's what the psalmist has in the covenant promises of the Lord. He has vertical peace with his designer and sustainer. 
And it's in that peace that he says in the plural, those, those who love your testimonies, those who love your law, they have exceeding peace, even when their circumstances are exceedingly painful. You desire true peace, you desire the Lord and his rule. The picture becomes this in, in a local church context. The more we're desiring the way of the Lord in our life, the rule of the Lord in our life, through our temptations and our leanings and every other element, the more we're desiring the Lord's purpose, being a people for his own possession, being and making disciples, followers of Jesus, and the places he's planted us in, to praise God with our life and our lips until he should come again, we will find ourselves drawing closer and closer together. It's a peace that is from God, not manufactured by man. True peace for the nations is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peace apart from the good news of Jesus Christ is not true and lasting peace. But if you have Jesus Christ, if He's your King and your Savior of your life, you can have peace through all the circumstances of the world. The circumstances of the world will give us crises or they'll give us temporary comforts. But only vertical peace from the Lord, the gift of peace, will give us lasting peace. So yes, we pray and we long for heaven. We long for the reign of Christ on this earth. We long for the new heavens and the new earth. We long for the permanent judgment of God to be poured out upon the wicked. But while we wait, we wait with hope. That flows in exactly to our third component now. We've seen first that desiring peace means that we must desire to be captivated by the Lord's word. Secondly, the perfect peace from the Lord's Word, it is itself praiseworthy, even while in turmoil. And third now, we see that our future hope in the Lord is to be observable today. Our future hope in the Lord is to be observable today. So in your bulletin, go ahead and pull out that handout that's in there. This was made up by, by Holly Chapman. She does a wonderful job. She writes all my sermons. That's a joke. It's not true. But she does a great job of making things like this a reality. So I gave her the idea. She helped to create it, put this in our bulletin for us as a tool. My hope for you is that this will not only help make these following three verses more comprehensible, but will be also memorable, meaning you might put this somewhere that might be of aid to you. You might put this in your refrigerator. You might put this at your place of work because the cycle is the same. The difference is, is do you have the true psalmist cycle of peace? Am I operating on, on, on that today, hoping in the Lord by his word? Or am I, and if I'm not, the answer is I'm probably operating by some kind of counterfeit cycle of peace. So let me explain this before we walk through this. It'll make it a little more effective, I think. So we all hope in something. We all have our hope somewhere, in someone, something. And the psalmist, even though he's in the middle of this wild trial, his hope is in the Lord by the Lord's word. He runs to the Lord's word. He doesn't run to feelings. He doesn't run to, to, to supplements of passions. He doesn't run to pleasures. He runs to the Lord by his word. And he remembers the Lord's word and he rests in the Lord's word. So he hopes in the Lord's word. 
And by hoping in the Lord's Word, he begins to practice the Lord's Word. Because as we'll see, God doesn't just want us to wait, he wants us to wait with hope. So we don't just grieve, we also grieve with hope. Because we know the Lord is going to come again. And so as we practice the way of the Lord, as we keep the things that God desires us to, as we love the Lord by his commandments, we find ourselves loving him more. We begin to love his word more. Doesn't mean we always feel like it, but we begin to change it by keeping the word of the Lord. And the more we love the Lord's word, the more aware we are of the Lord's presence. To say it this way, the more aware we are that the Lord is aware of where we are. Okay? So the more aware we are of the Lord, the more we'll be aware that the Lord, follow it back down, is aware of where we are. What's the scariest part of being lost? That you're not going to get found. But the psalmist, by his word, remembers the Lord. And he knows that the Lord is aware of where he's at. And that brings him the peace. That refortifies his hope in the Lord by his word, which leads him to continue to practice even deeper the word of the Lord, even when life continues to go crazy. And there he grows in his love of the Word, and he's more aware of the Lord. And the more aware of the Lord is, the more he hopes in the Lord by his Word. And I'm just going to keep doing this until you're all like nodding your heads like that makes total sense. I've got to be honest, there's a, just so you know me a little better as a person, there's a major part of me that wanted to just do that as long as I could until you begin to walk out. Okay, there's something, just so you know, it's a confession about... My weirdness, okay, part of me just wanted to see what would happen. But I'm not going to do that to you, so do that on your own. Now, on the other side is this counterfeit. And the counterfeit is what? Every person hopes in something. Our culture likes to make faith out like it's a bad thing or something for weak people. Everyone has faith. Everyone does. What's funny about our culture is they won't say, I have faith. They'll say, I have confidence. I have confidence in that. I have confidence that it'll work out. What's confidence? It's two words, con meaning with and fide faith, right? Just doesn't have the stigma to it that faith does. Everybody trusts in something outside themselves. Everyone does, period. And everyone hopes in something. In 1 John, we're presented with this picture of the, the, the lust of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life are not from the Lord, but are of the world that, are, that is perishing. And our temptation will be to root in our life that hope. So the thought will be, if I get a little more pleasure, then, and I'll practice that pleasure, I'll, I'll fall more in love with it, I'll become more aware of it, and you'll begin this other drilling cycle that goes the other direction. But even though it doesn't give us the peace we long for, we think, well, maybe if I do it for a little bit longer, or maybe if I'm a little more passionate about it this time. And it can never deliver because it's a liar. It's a counterfeit. Peace of the Lord will only come by the Lord from His Word. So we anchor ourselves in the goodness of the Word of the Lord. Now, now that I preface that, let's walk through these three components that make up this four-part cycle. So our future hope in the Lord is to be observable today. We note first in verse 166 that because we hope in the Lord, we practice His commands. Because we hope in the Lord, 
we practice his commands. If you're going to take this to the next level, you might even write like verse 166 there. The psalmist says, I hope for your salvation, O Lord, Yahweh, O Lord, and I do your commands. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commands. So by grace, our, our faith produces a faithfulness in us. The gift of God, your salvation, that produces a faithfulness in our lives to growingly desire the things of the Lord and to growingly be disgusted by the things that are not of the Lord. So the psalmist, while he's, while he's busy waiting, he does the commandments of the Lord because he knows it's what the Lord desires. Yes, he wants the trial to end, but while the trial continues, he abides in the Lord. He says, I do your commands. I do your commands. So while we wait, we wait, we wait with hope. I'm going to go to a similar text. Look over in the New Testament to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's page 987. 987. Giving you a finger workout today. In page 987, we have 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to read verse 13 through 18 together toward the end of this letter. The church is, likewise at Philippi, it's going through a lot of hardship. Believers are dying. And the church is wrestling with the timing of the Lord. They're wrestling with wondering, is the Lord aware of what's taking place? I want you to note what Paul tells the church in Thessalonica. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that is, those who have died. It would be very much like in our church body right here. Many who used to sit where you sit are dead. They've died. Most of natural causes. But in the church in Thessalonica, some of them would have likely died because of their faith. And he tells them, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died. Why? That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Keep your finger on that spot. Why do we have hope? We have hope because of the lion who is all-knowing. He is great and powerful. He doesn't progress in his knowledge. He knows all things and he's intimately involved. And so we have hope because we know how the story ends. And he tells the church, listen, you grieve, but you grieve with hope because you know how the story is going to end. Now look at this, verse 14. He reminds them, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, do you believe that? Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, physically still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, when he comes again, just as he ascended, he will descend, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So not only has the Lord not forgotten about those who have died and buried, 
When he comes again, they're going to be first to raise before we are, if we're still alive when he comes again. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. He begins by reminding them of their hope, and he reminds them it ends in the end with an awareness that we will always be with the Lord. Just right now, in the middle of your trial, the middle of your life, right now, the Lord is intimately aware of you. Paul reminds the church in Thessalonica, God is intimately aware of your suffering for the faith. And not only is he aware right now, but a day will come which we will always be with the Lord, not just in spirit, but bodily. Begins with hope, ends in awareness, which leads to greater hope. What does he do with the church in that in verse 18? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. What does that assume? Every single book in Scripture is meant to have a church body application, a community of faith application. So it assumes that the church is in each other's lives well enough that they can do what? Encourage one another with these things as the family of faith. One of the greatest gifts that God can give us is, is the local body to remind us of the hope we have in Him. So first, because we hope in the Lord, we practice His commands. And as we practice His commands, we go to verse 167. As we practice His commands, we grow in our love for them. As we practice His commands, we grow in our love for them. Look what the psalmist says, back in verse 167. He says, my soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. So because we hope in the Lord, we practice His commands. Because we practice His commands, we grow in our love for them. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That in keeping the commands of the Lord, we grow in a love of the Lord and His word and His commands. And likewise, on the other side, the more we love His Word, the more we desire to keep His Word because we've seen the full blessing of His Word in our different contexts. That's the gift that the Lord gives to us. And, and what happens to our maturity? What happens to our love? It grows greatly, or depending on your translation, exceedingly. It keeps maturing. Now, I give a lot of examples about marriage, but I want to give one about Friendship. Friendship. Do you have any friends? Like, truly, I ask you that question. Do you have a friend in your life? And I define a friend on this basis. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's what I mean by a friend. Do you have someone in your life that when you're at a step, because they love you and your relationship and you're abiding in the word of the Lord well enough, they would speak into your life and give you a temporary wound for your good. Do you have a friend like that in your life? Many of you do. Our church is marked by a multitude of layered friendships 
this person corrects this person, and this person corrects that person back, and time goes by. And what it creates over time is a depth that cannot be manufactured. It flows from keeping after one another over a long period of time. The beauty and depth of that ends is incredible. That's what the psalmist says of our prayer life. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. So meaning, I keep going to your word, and your word keeps wounding me like a friend. I didn't want to hear that, but I needed to hear that. You ever had a friend tell you, do something like that in your life? Or you said, I didn't, I didn't want to hear that, but I needed to hear that. That happens every time we hear the Scriptures, doesn't it? Like I'm sure there's something I've said over the last year and a half where you've been like, I did not want to hear that, but I needed to hear that. And there's probably a lot of stuff I've said you've been like, I didn't even need to hear that. Right? Let's be honest here, right? But the goodness of the Lord's Word is, oh, He sticks closer than a brother. What meaningful richness that comes in our life as we hope in the Lord's Word, we practice His Word. And as we practice His Word more and more, we begin to grow in our love and our maturity in our depth. One of the sweetest things is seeing people that have known each other for a multitude of years and the depth of friendship that they have. You cannot manufacture that kind of depth. A beautiful peace, a beautiful depth. As we practice His commands, we grow in our love for them. And third, we see as we come to verse 168, as we grow in our love for His commands, we are more aware of His presence. As we grow in our love for His commands, we are more aware of His presence. Verse 168, he says this statement of allegiance. I keep your precepts and your testimonies for all my ways are before you. That very last statement, underline it in your Bibles if you're into marking up your Bible. For all my ways are before you. It's not mind-blowing, is it? Don't we know that God is all-knowing? He doesn't progress in knowledge. He's perfect. So we know that God knows. Is that statement at the very end, look at it, is that statement, for, for all my ways are before you. Isn't that statement true even when David is in sin with Bathsheba, aren't all of his ways still before the Lord? Of course they are. So why does the psalmist make the statement here? He makes the statement here because it's part of the blessing of peace. Because he's hoped in the Lord by his word, he's practiced the word of the Lord. And by practicing the word of the Lord, he's grown in love of the word of the Lord. And by loving the Lord in his word, by keeping his commands, what has happened? He's become aware of this truth, that the Lord is aware of him right now while he's praying with his life very possibly on the line. And it's given him a peace that flows accurately from the sound theology of who God is, one who is intimately aware of all of our ways. And his awareness of the Lord leads him to hope even greater in the Lord by His Word. And the cycle continues. And as a church family, that's our call for one another. So when we say, how are you doing? We're not really just gauging how do you feel. 
What I'm also asking is, is how can I help remind you to hope in the Lord by His Word today? Because that's encouragement. Those are wounds that heal, even though they hurt. Because he hopes in the Lord, he practices commands, he grows in love for them, and he's more aware of them. That's sin or shin. Not by bread alone, but by every word. That's the gift of peace that is yours in Christ today. Do you know Jesus? He is the gift of peace that is yours today. Not by bread alone, but by every word. Next steps. Two questions. Next steps. Question one. Every time we examine the word of the Lord, we are examined by the word of the Lord, right? Every time we come to the word, we're examined by the word. As you read the Gospels, we're going to be in the Gospel of John in 2020. And every time you see Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees, they come to him to question him. And how do they leave questioned by him? The word of the Lord, he does that to us in our lives. So my question to you is through this series of Psalm 119. We have one last week. We're going to finish it next week. I'm very excited. The text is unbelievable. But as we've been walking through this, how has the Lord maybe convicted you? How has the Lord examined you by the Spirit through His Word? Write it down. Take some time this week to really think through how has the Lord been working and speaking to me by His Spirit through His Word this, these last few months. And then finally, as we think about this hope, this, this cycle of peace, where are you most likely to place your hope? The desires of the flesh? Pride of life, the longings of the eyes. Where are you most likely to place your hope that you know will produce a counterfeit peace? Wherever that is, as we stand and sing together in worship, would you confess that to the Lord as you rest in the goodness of the finished work of Christ? Would you stand with me, church family, as we sing?